from WBEZ Chicago. It's Ira Glass and his Radio Cowboys. No, that is definitely not good. All right, let's try this. Nah, not that music. How about this one? From WBEZ Chicago, it's Journey to Whatever. I'm Ira Glass. From WBEZ Chicago, it's Mouth Noise. I'm Ira Glass. It's Small Moment from WBEZ Chicago, documenting every little thing in this, our American lives. Hello, from WBEZ Chicago, you're listening to Chinwag Theater. It was when I decided that the name of our radio show should no longer be Your Radio Playhouse, a name which I kind of loved, but many people found, many people hated, I'll just say many people hated that title, especially public radio program directors who told me that they already had radio drama and we would explain, no, no, we don't, this isn't a radio drama show, it's Playhouse like, like Pee Wee Herman, Playhouse like Pee Wee Herman, it's a playhouse, it's a place where people play, but it's also a stage a double meaning it was when I decided that the name of the show should be American Whatever that everyone who I work with decided not only was I wrong but I was wrong in a profound way that that indicated that we could never be friends we could never truly understand or know each other I was wrong in a way that was incomprehensible to the people who I work with every day I am not here, however, to talk about myself and our little radio show because I believe that we accidentally stumbled onto a broader, more fundamental truth about naming something. Naming a business, a restaurant, a, a person, a dog. Well, not a dog, really, because, you know, people don't care what you name your dog. It's true of naming everything except for naming a dog. People are unbelievably tolerant of naming a dog. You could name your dog your radio playhouse, and nobody would think twice about it. and I would send you a free coffee mug or something just for proving me right. What I learned is that there's something about a name. You know, most, most creative acts that one does in one's life, there's enough content to them. They are longer than the length of a name. And so when people disagree with each other, they can discuss it. There's, there's pros and cons. There are parts of it that you can dissect. But a name is so basic. It's so, it's so undividable. Un, even if it's got a lot of words in it. That, that all you get is this visceral, very binary response. Like it? Don't like it. Well, from WBEZ Chicago, this is Glassworks. See, I would need German music, actually. From WBEZ Chicago, Glasnos. That's the, that's the most horrifying possibility, is that you would end up using your own name. Well, we did settle on a new name. And by the way, we have a very unusual show tonight, many unusual things coming up. In Act 3, David Isaacson, with the beginning of this new project where we're having various uh, very unusual writers and performers give their take on our presidential campaigns. In Act 2, 
Oh, I don't even want to go into it. Just stay with us here because the show's ch- going to change a lot. But anyway, we did settle on a new name. And to discuss the name and all the different names that led to the name, the pre-names, the discarded names, the... Oh, forget it. To discuss that, I called one of the grand old men of broadcasting. He's had the longest-running talk show in the history of television. It's in New York. Joe Franklin. Hello? Joe Franklin? Yeah. It's Ira Glass at the radio show in Chicago. Right, Ira. Hold on for one second. Yeah, Jimmy. What, what color are they, Jimmy? Like, let me, give me 15 minutes, Jimmy. Yes, Ira. What, what kind of business are you doing there? Oh, Ira, I sell uh, matzo balls. And Cod they're fish, black? Codfish balls. No, man lost his eyeglasses here. So. Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah, well, i got to go through it. i got to go through it. So what do you think of changing the name, huh? Yeah, in fact, we've, we've announced a name change. Uh, and you were on our first program mm-hmm. uh, giving me advice about having uh, a program which would have some longevity. Yeah, yeah. We taped that in my office here, was it? Or in the that we, did, we did it over the phone. Right. So you were just sitting in your office and you talked to me over the phone. Mm-hmm. I remember that, yeah. And, um, and so we thought we'd have you back just to review some of these names. Mm-hmm. I'm ready. Okay, so let me run a couple of these titles by you. Um, American Whatever. American Whatever? Yeah. Eh, ambiguous. Ambiguous. Ira Glass and his Radio Cowboys. Well, if you want to make a play on your name, I would call it The House of Glass. I can't believe you're saying that. What, and let it be, let it be a hotel in the Catskills, <laughs> like like Grossinger's or or Concord or Browns or, or Browns or or a, a bungalow colony or what they call a Kochalane. But I would definitely, <laughs> I would definitely, you know, call it the, if you want to play in your name, uh, the House of Glass. There was a whole, actually, there were many suggestions, especially from our Los Angeles uh, affiliate. They yes. were very strong on the idea of Glass House as the title. Glass House, yeah. Yeah. House of Glass is a little, little more uh, erudite, a little, little more formal, you know, but that's up to you. Other names that were suggested, Glass Nose, mm-hmm. which means openness, you know, mm-hmm. because we're doing new stuff. Mm-hmm. Glass Menagerie. Right. Splendor in the Glass. Mm-hmm. You, you don't seem impressed by any Keep of up the Glass. Glass has class. No, those are good. Okay, other titles, Radio Licious. Vicious or Licious? Licious. Like like delicious? Yes, sir. Uh, too cutesy. Too cutesy. A million stories. Better than the preceding one, yeah, but not still not great. How about this title? This American Life. I would say that's about the best yet. Better than your radio playhouse, anyhow. Well, I'm glad you say this, because that's actually the one that we chose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That says it all. That says it all, and... Uh, I think anything we start with the word America is that was the word, was the word America was the first word. No, it's the second one. Actually, anything with it's America, not the first though, one. Near the beginning, near the beginning is good. It's always near the beginning. Always, yeah. How important is a name? I would say the name is everything. Look at Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn Monroe told me that the important thing in a name is to have a vowel sound of a e i o o u. You know, now what's that again? Uh, what was your title again? The American say it again. This American Life. Yeah, see, you got. Uh, at least you got one. You got the sound I, life, life. So it's it's a, the, the name is everything. Well, wait. There's an I in this. No, no, but not, but not, not the, uh, not the A I O U sound. You know, it's got to be. It's a soft. It's a soft. It's a soft I. It's got to be a hard I. Like this. Like the word. I like the noun I. You know what I mean? Got to be. It's got to be the sound of A E I O or U. So, so wait. Be, so what's a good title under this criterion? 
Well, no, this is American life. At least it ends, it ends on a vowel sound. It ends on a vowel. Does the Joe Franklin show conform to this rule? Well, Joe, the word Joe. Oh, I see. It's Joe. a long vowel. Joe and show, yeah. Okay. Two night show, late show, you know what I'm saying? Late. Two, as long as it's got the A E I O O sound. Because anything, a name like uh, John Smith, it's got no, no hard vowel sound, so it's not that appealing. It's always desirable to have vowels in your sounds if you can. TV talk show host Joe Franklin. He has a book out. He has nostalgic CDs everywhere. I could never sleep my way to the top Cause my alarm clock always wakes me right up And since my options have been whittled away I struck a bargain with my radio DJ I said I'd like this song to be number one He said I'd really, really like to help you, my son And then I knew that I would have him to thank Because he asked me how much I had in the bank He said to think long-term investment And that all the others have forgiven themselves He said the net reward would justify The colossal mess they made of their lives He said the record wouldn't have to be hot And no one ever seemed to care if it's not It would depend on something else that I've got And that the other ones are giving it a shot I'd seen a modest sum grow geometrically And then they had forgiven themselves Because the net reward had justified The colossal mess they made of their lives Hey, Mr. DJ, I thought you said we had a deal I thought you said you scratch my back and I'll scratch your kid And I thought you said we had a deal About the world that's addressed I wonder when you're gonna clean up the mess You know the rabbit child is still tuning in Just be spaces, patients must be wearing thin Because they haven't made this song on the air Not that anyone but me even care And the district he has moved out of town The district caught us as he'd nowhere to be found He said the thing like term investment And that all the others have forgiven themselves He said the net reward was Hey, Mr. DJ, I thought she said we had a deal. I thought she said you scratch my back and I'll scratch your record. And I thought she said we had a deal. Act one, peer pressure. Well, last week on this program, as one of our stories about the state of the nation's economy, we did a report about Chicago's Navy Pier, what it cost taxpayers and what they got out of it. It cost, if you did not hear our show, $155 million in taxpayers' money and created, at most, 1,200 jobs, about half of those part-time. That's $130,000 per job. 
spokesman for the city said that we should judge the pier by the pleasure that it gives Chicagoans and the overall boost that it gives to tourism, not by the cost per job created. But in our report, we also took pains to point out that by all accounts, the pier has been a huge, huge business success. Crowds are twice as big as anyone projected, over three million people in the first six months. The stores and restaurants on the pier say that they're doing well by and large. But two days after our broadcast, the news broke that Navy Pier is in fact losing money. At least the city agency that runs the pier is, and they're losing a lot of money—nine million dollars in the pier's first eight months of business. Because of this, Navy Pier has announced that it will lay off one fourth of its full-time staff and do other cost-cutting. We have put in several requests over the course of this week to speak with the head of the pier, James Riley, or another pier spokesperson. We wanted to ask what was going wrong. How could they be doing such gangbuster business and still lose money? With over three million visitors, the city is losing two to three dollars per visitor, and this at a place that charges sixteen dollars to park. All this week, the public relations office at Navy Pier has promised an interview, but in the end, this did not happen. The closest we can get to finding out why the pier is losing all this money is in Crane's Chicago business. There, the head of the pier authority, Mr. Riley, said the losses had to do with opening delays and what the paper called first-year inefficiencies. He did not go into details. And we have one other amendment to last week's story on Navy Pier. When I came into work after the story aired, one of my fellow staffers here at Chicago's public radio station—this was Aaron Freeman—told me that in our coverage about the economics of Navy Pier, we had missed the main point of what makes the pier so worthwhile to Chicago taxpayers. And at the end of the workday, he loaded his two twin girls into their special wide-load double stroller. The radio station is located midway down Navy Pier, and we headed out into the promenade so he could show me what he was talking about. If you're a parent, for families, this place is just like the best place in the city of Chicago to bring bring your kids. Because no matter what, when you come down here, what time of day, that your children will be amused. So how often do you bring your kids here? They come here at least twice a week. I mean, I you know, like I work down here, so I bring them down here at least twice a week. But I tell you, um, you know, a lot of times when if I can't think of anything else to do, we come down here, and uh, they, they just run around. They run around to the, from store to store. It's all it's colorful. You know, they're four, so it's colorful. There's dolls. There's all kinds of fun colors. And now they got the big. You know, they love the Omnimax. They had the big. You know, they had the uh, Serengeti show. Now they got the big 3D Omnimax. We haven't seen that yet, but there's bookstores. You can go like the Children's Museum shop. Even if the Children's Museum is closed. The Children's Museum gift shop, you can spend, you can kill off half an hour, 45 minutes just looking at the stuff in there. We headed to the atrium at the center of the pier. Aaron kept one hand on the stroller and threw the other in a broad sweep of the panorama. Now, you look around and there's nothing but great stuff. The Children's Museum, the IMAX, the McDonald's. If you're a kid, you can't top this. I mean, there's toy stores. What is, if you're just a man, if you were a four-year-old, you look around here, is this not just a feast? If you're four, just think back. It would be fun, sure. Well, okay. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, because your parents, you, your parent, they they are they are happy here, and there's plenty of stuff for parents to do to amuse them. You can go while the kids are running around enjoying all the primary colors. You can go drink, <laughs> you know, which is always a fun thing to do. We headed up to the Crystal Gardens, where, inside a big glassed-in room, there are palm trees and jumping waters—literally streams of water which spurt out and jump from one artificial pond to another. 
As Aaron expounded on how wonderful all this was, I should note for the record that his two small children were not particularly enchanted. It was the end of the day. They were tired in a way that even $155 million of taxpayers' money cannot alter or change. As politicians like to say these days, there are some problems the government can't solve no matter how much money it throws at them. Diana slept. Artemis was cranky. Jumping fountains or not. I want to come here. You don't want to come <laughs> You don't want to be here? Where do you want to be? Um, downstairs. Downstairs? All right. So... We headed downstairs. When we got to the food court, Artemis perked up a bit. You have to get food, Dad. Yes, we have to get food. We're gonna, you, you want to have some pizza? Yeah. I'm going to get my own food. What are you going to get? I thought you wanted pizza. I'm going to get oatmeal. Oatmeal? Turns out oatmeal is not one of the fine dining options at the Navy Pier food court. Artemis hopped out of the stroller and headed over to Connie's Pizza. What do you say? Do you have oatmeal? Oh, no, we don't have oatmeal here. <laughs> Aaron ordered a pizza for the kids. And while we waited the two minutes that it takes to cook, his other daughter, Diana, made a little announcement. I need to show you something. What do you need to show me? Well, i got to get food, too, though, okay? But I need to show you something. What do you want to show me? Well, it's really cool. Wait, show me after we get food, okay? Around us, it was pretty empty. No special events were taking place at the pier. But there were other families. Kids ran around. It was relaxed. Diana and Artemis goofed around, got into a tiny spat or two, then played some more. When the food arrived, Aaron had them do their regular family ritual, the blessings over the food. Now, is the crust made out of bread? Yeah. So what are we saying? Um, I'm ham I'm Hazan. Uh, I, I know. I'm What's it worth, Aaron asked me, to have a place like this for families in the city? How do you want the city to spend taxpayers' money? After they ate another family ritual, the kids run each piece of trash to the garbage can, one piece at a time. Fun? No. no. Good. Okay, here you go. See, I mean, it's about uh, 20 feet, 25 feet over to the trash. Now, you see there's a closed trash can, but they like running. <laughs> they like, they're young. They haven't learned about this conservation of energy thing. <laughs> there you go. By the time he puts him in the car, Aaron says, they'll be exhausted, ready to go to sleep, down for the night. What parent is going to complain about that? After the trash is thrown away, Aaron wants to buy them ice cream. But Diana remembers there's one bit of unfinished business. And then we, you guys could go with me to see the surprise. What is the surprise? If I told you, it won't be a surprise, silly. So we gather our things and we follow Diana to the surprise. We head past the food court and through the McDonald's, which has a special space-age decor with lots of lights and colors. That's not the, all of these things are not the surprise We're not there. Diana spins around. Hey, where did I see it? It was here somewhere. It was here somewhere. Diana runs in that rapid waddle very small children have when they run. Through the McDonald's, unable to find her original surprise, when suddenly she hears music coming from the hall and waddle runs toward it, pointing. Oh, look! A parade! That's the surprise I was looking for! 
not a parade, but peer pressure for jazz musicians hired by the peer, playing in an otherwise empty atrium. She stands there, pointing at the band excitedly, turning to look up at her dad, turning back to the band. It's tempting to call this a priceless moment, but of course, we know the price. $155 million, plus the 12 that Aaron's spending on food and treats, plus parking. The girls listen happily to the music for a while, and then head out for ice cream and the car ride home. probably already seen the footage. There's the courtroom with that grainy, ugly lighting that courtrooms have on TV. There's the judge. There's usual assortment of disheveled-looking men and women in suits who do the business of all courtrooms. Lawyers, the jurors, the press, the audience. And there, among them, a woman in a Star Trek uniform. This was the Whitewater trial, And the woman in the uniform was on the jury. Barbara Adams is her name. She has since been removed from the jury. And people have snickered all across the country. But one of the most interesting discussions of this juror and of what we are to make of her occurred on the Internet, on something called a listserv group, this one about fandom. This is fandom as in fans of TV shows, especially science fiction shows like Babylon 5, Star Trek, that kind of thing. This group is devoted to the academic study of what it means to be a fan. 
and on it are fans and academics who post messages to each other. And the discussion kicked off with one woman who wrote in in disbelief. I only saw a brief bit of it on CNN, but it immediately made me want to go and hide somewhere. There was footage of the juror in STTNG uniform, Star Trek The Next Generation, complete with phaser and assorted gear, I believe. And upon seeing the bank of news cameras, this juror gave them the Vulcan salute. Am I getting this correctly? Can anybody fill in some of the blanks? Am I wrong for being embarrassed for Trek fandom in general? I mean, as far as providing a handy, digestible image for vast tracts of cable-watching America, of the fan, as crazed, detached-from-reality, lunatic nerd, that picture seemed worth a thousand words. Anybody else even see this? Or have I been breathing too many photocopy fumes again? What's so interesting is her horror. You know, she was horrified in the way that you're horrified when you see a member of your own family do something strange in public. Other people wrote in and reassured her that, yes, this was real. Here's one. The woman did come fully dressed with phaser as an alternate juror. The first day, the picture showed her as a curiosity. And a day or two later, however, the journalist could not resist asking her what it was all about. She said very politely that she was the commander of a local starship, a Star Trek group in Little Rock, that she wore her uniform to all formal occasions to remind the general public of the meaning of Star Trek. I think the reporters were probably laughing at first, but then the last article I read said that she was an excellent juror, very serious, took copious notes. The reason she was dismissed was that the reporters had asked her outside the courthouse about the uniform. And although there was a gag order on the trial, she felt it was okay to talk since Star Trek had nothing to do with the trial. She only gave them a short, polite answer, so she said they'd leave her alone. The judge says that she'd violated the gag order and dismissed her, the article seemed to indicate that she got a bum deal. I had mixed feelings reading about it. I once had a student in a group comm class I was teaching do the exact same thing. Every class, he showed up in his uniform. At first, people sniggered, but he was very polite, and the uniform gave him self-confidence, I think. Eventually, everyone in class accepted it, as much as they accepted African-American and religious symbols, and they even used him as an expert on a mock group exercise. They had to figure out in the group process how to equip a spaceship for a long journey. People started to weigh in, saying that no, they should not be embarrassed at all, as Star Trek fans. One wrote, Embarrassed for Trek fandom? I was proud of the uniform-clad, whitewater would-be juror. She said she always wears her uniform to formal events. Frankly, I'd rather be associated with Trekkers than with the governor of Arkansas, or any of the garbage that apparently goes down in Little Rock. The juror looked a lot less stupid than two-thirds of the past and present Clinton administrations. And a man named Henry Jenkins posted a note to the group. He is the director of film and media studies at MIT and author of two books about fandom. The latest is called Science Fiction Audiences, Watching Star Trek and Doctor Who. He says it is someone who's been a fan for 20 years. He's often thought there are strong analogies between the way that gays and lesbians deal with these kinds of issues and the way the fan community does. He talked about the politics of cultural preference, people who feel a strong attachment to certain things in the culture, as being similar to the politics of sexual preference. We asked him if he'd go into a radio studio in Boston and read some of his posting for us, and he was gracious enough to agree. I've often thought there are strong analogies to be drawn between the queer community's politics of sexual preference and the fan community's politics of cultural preference. 
From the point of view of mundane culture, both groups provoke discomfort concerning their scandalous taste and shocking behavior. One often hears people speak of coming out as a fan or being closeted at work. Fans often hide their cultural preferences, afraid of what their office mates might think about their hobbies, their friends, their creative accomplishments, or how they spend their weekends. I've known many fans who've had to hide fanzines from unsympathetic eyes or lie to their spouses about going to a convention. And most of us have been snickered at and subjected to endless harangues in the popular media. We have our own terminological disputes, rejecting the outsider term Trekkie with its historic ties to groupie, for the insider term Trekker with its positive connotations of active participation. That's why many of us automatically cringed when we saw pictures of the Whitewater juror and her Starfleet uniform. But in his posting on the Internet, Jenkins wrote that he rethought this position when he thought about his analogy to queer politics. Yeah, I, it seems to me that an awful lot of what we do in the, in the fan community has strong parallels with some of the debates that occur in the community surrounding gays and lesbians. Uh, there's a debate going on there right now that's often labeled the place at the table debate because it grows out of Bruce Bauer's book, A Place at the Table. And the central issue is, from the gay community, you know, on the one hand, Bauer is arguing that gays should assimilate, that they should sort of downplay uh, transgressive behaviors. That they should mainstream themselves. They should mainstream they should themselves, try exactly. Try to appear like other people. That they, that they should, you know, they shouldn't be parading around in drag or in leather or on gay pride parades and so forth. They should try to fit in, and then it might gain acceptance that way. Mm -hmm. The problem, of course, is that that pushes the queer community into doing the dirty work for the family values folks. You seek acceptance by policing your own ranks and by saying what's normal and what's, what's not. And the argument goes that one's only free as a community when the mo even the most extreme behavior is allowed to express itself. And I think if we read the fans' behavior by those standards, that is, you know, as an expression of her cultural preferences, then we have to defend her right to wear the uniform and respect the courage in confronting the public ridicule that surrounded her action. Her choice kind of represents a new kind of fan identity politics, as you would, that we're tired of being told by William Shatner and others to get a life. We're tired of being stereotyped as living in our parents' basement. In fact, we are a wide variety of people who happen to believe in the cultural power of television and of all art to change the way we think about the universe. So what's exciting about the fans' behavior is that she wasn't afraid, she didn't hide, she asserted very publicly who she was and, and what what her commitments were, and it's, I see it as kind of striking a blow for the dignity of fans, particularly given how thoughtful, moderate, and articulate she happened to be. Did you cringe a little bit when you saw her? When I first saw it, I did, but as I started to think through this issue, I started to think, you know, why am I cringing? Why am I ashamed? You know, I've written two books on Star Trek fan culture. I have a very strong commitment to the idea that it is one of the important participatory cultures of our time, that it is one way people have of talking back to television, of taking control of their own lives and creating their own culture from the materials they borrow from the mass media. So I shouldn't be ashamed, in fact, to see it projected even in the most public and uh, political of spaces. What does it mean to be a fan? Well, I think increasingly it means what it is to be an American in the digital age. That is, if we look at, Harris tells us that more than 53% of the American public consider themselves to be Star Trek fans. That means an awful lot of those are not people who wear rubber Spock ears and overly tight velour uniforms. That they are people who represent the full range of American life. 
And as we began to move online as a, as a society, it seems abundantly clear that television fandom becomes a central motivation that gets people to participate in the digital realm. That is, what are we going to talk about when we go online and have the possibility of talking to people from around the country and around the world? We're not going to talk about my Aunt Agatha, who you and the people in Chicago have never heard of before. We're going to talk about people and images and stories that we share in common. And those images, in all likelihood, are going to come from national or even internationally circulated shows like Star Trek. So the point is that national media provides the fan community with a way of telling its own stories, of framing its own identities, which allows us to speak to each other across all kinds of isolation we face as a society. Henry Jenkins is director of film and media studies at MIT. He spoke with us from WBUR in Boston. And we close our virtual visit with him with one last reading from his internet posting. Now, the most interesting aspect of the story is not that she wore her uniform to the court, but that she got selected despite or perhaps even because she wore the uniform. Jury selection in a high-profile case like Whitewater has become an increasingly exact science. Experts make recommendations to the lawyers based on a body of stereotypes about how different social groups are likely to respond to certain kinds of cases or arguments. Blacks are good for the defense, white men are good for the prosecution, and so forth. But there probably never needed to be a grid for fans as a social group before. So what stereotypes of fans did the experts draw upon in assessing this particular juror? When I first saw her picture in the paper as she was awaiting jury selection, my immediate response was that she'd never get picked. Neither the prosecution nor the defense would find her acceptable because, as a trekker, she would be seen as too aberrant, too unpredictable, too abnormal and excessive. Instead, I suspect a different stereotype clicked into place. The notion that fans are gullible, easily led, easily manipulated. Both sets of lawyers probably thought that they could control her with their rhetoric. After all, if she can't tell the difference between a TV show and real life, she's a pushover for whatever arguments they wanted to make. The woman we saw interviewed on television news, however, fits neither stereotype. She was thoughtful, moderate, and articulate. She also happens to be a Star Trek fan. Get used to it. The whole case is, as Mr. Spock would say, fascinating. Well, we move on to another kind of fandom when our program continues. Thank you. 
It's this American life. I'm Ira Glass. Heck 2 continues. So let's say it's not Star Trek that shapes your identity. Let's say it's G.I. Joe. When Cindy Patton was nine, after lots of hinting around to her family, she was given a G.I. Joe for Christmas. Next to her collection of incredibly detailed matchbox cars, it was her favorite toy. But after three idyllic years with G.I. Joe, her mother started to get worried about certain tendencies she was noticing in Cindy. And at Christmas, Cindy only got clothes. Only dresses, in fact. And my mother and my sister at one point looked at me and my mother said in this tone that now seems I can just sort of hear it this year we're going to make you into a little lady but my but my response at the time I was a very kind of calculating little child my response at the time was I can outlast this and I figured you know about six more years and I would be off to college and then I could do whatever I wanted in college Cindy came out as gay. Now she's a professor at Temple University, writes a lot about gay issues. But at some point in her mid-twenties, she became sort of obsessed with getting her favorite toys back from her parents. I describe it as sort of this quest to get them back because my parents kept on for very, on varying pretexts preventing me from taking these toys. Now, I had taken a few other, you know, stuffed animals and things like that, so it wasn't like they were trying to prevent me from taking toys in general. But these particular toys seemed to be unable to leave my parents' home. I was I flew down at one point, and that time I think my mother said, oh, you know, the planes are really crowded, and you can only take so many things on, and so, you know, you can't take these toys. We'll come visit you and bring them. And, of course, when they came to visit, they had forgotten to bring them. And this went on for several years. And I finally sent this very, you know, um, no ifs, ands, or buts letter, basically saying, you know, send me my toys. My nephews were given various toys of mine to play with, and they were not very careful, and so, um, so I'd become kind of alarmed, and I felt sort of intruded upon or betrayed in some way by having these toys of mine given to my nephews. You know, it was, of course, under the guise of, you know, your sister doesn't have very much money and you have these toys, they might as well get used. Um, But I think it was also about, um, or at least in my mind anyway, there was something about the toys finding their way into the appropriate gender's hands, that somehow, um, as a girl child, that I had not, you know, used these toys in the appropriate way or something, that there had been something wrong about my relation to them that would be recuperated by them having boy children, having them and using them and playing with them. At some point, Cindy Patton noticed how urgently she wanted those toys back from her parents. And she started to remember things about the toys that she had forgotten, how she'd cared for them meticulously, always returning G.I. Joe to his box after playing with him, keeping track of every accessory, every instruction sheet. Her matchbox cars were like new after years of playing with them. The doors still worked. Steering wheels still turned. I think in a way, though I keep calling it obsessive-compulsive, it's less about, you know, some sort of obsessive-compulsive desire than it is about a kind of um, 
ritual of preservation. And I think that I had that. I, I wonder whether when I was a kid I realized that I wasn't going to get away with this, you know, this not really being a girl. Um, and so that I was very, very careful to, you know, keep very, very good care of these particular toys. I mean, I generally took good care of my toys, but I was especially um, detailed in taking care of these toys. It was almost like a kind of meditation. Um, the toys themselves and this particular um, obsession I had for retrieving them from my family really made me... Um, recognized the complexity of my own gender structure, and probably gender structures in general. What she realized was that she wanted this part of her past that was boy, where she was like a boy. And the reason why this was such a revelation was that she was of the generation of lesbians who came of age in the 1970s, the so-called lesbian feminists, who wanted to do away with the old lesbian order in which some women were more butch, more like men, and some were femme more like women. They wanted to move towards a neutral, sort of non-gender. This idea is actually out of fashion now among younger lesbians. Butch and femme are back, and back with a vengeance. But seeing then how much she wanted G.I. Joe, her old G.I. Joe, and her matchbox cars, was what made Cindy Patton realize she thought that she wasn't this kind of neutral, non-gender person. She realized that she thought of herself more as a boy. Finally, the package came. I was in shock. I, I couldn't believe that it had finally come. Um, and I was quite... Uh, my heart was beating. and I think I was driving to work or something, and I sort of picked them up at the post office on the way. And uh, I think I might have um, waited until lunch and then gone back out to the car and kind of, you know, surreptitiously you know, opened the package and found these things in it. I was quite moved. It was very, um, um, it was sort of like recovering a piece of my childhood, or my, my childhood as a boy.
We begin a little radio experiment today on our program to have non-journalists cover aspects of the presidential campaign, commission original work from these non-journalists. We begin with Chicago playwright David Isaacson, who's done many plays here in Chicago for Theodore Ublek, who prepared this about Pat Buchanan. I had a dream last night, which is an odd thing in and of itself, because I am not prone to dreaming, especially lately. Exhausted after very full days campaigning, Galesburg, Peoria, Southside, Chicago. Why don't I dream at night? Well, Herr Sigismund Freud and his cabal of Austro-atheist mind doctors say that dreams are the nocturnal expressions of all that is repressed during the day. But the thing is, I don't repress. If it pops into my head, I let it pop right out of my mouth. That's the source of my pop-pop-popularity. While the Clintons and Doles check the contingencies and polls before every public utterance, I'm utterly straight with my public. I don't repress, so I don't dream. Except last night. It was the oddest thing. I dreamt of myself, but myself in the past, and in the present, and in the future. The first part, it was very green. Green grass everywhere, green grasses, rushes and ferns, puffins flying overhead. Druids leaned against dolmens fashioning wreaths of mistletoe. I stood in front of an enormous electrified chain-link fence that went on and on, disappearing into the cloud-filled horizons both north and south. Apparently, I was the border guard in ancient Celtic Ireland. And lo! Who should appear on the other side of this mass of barbed wire and steel but my namesake, St. Patrick? St. Patrick! I cried out. Well, this is a fine how-do-you-do. You know, they were just booing me at your parade in Chicago the other day, hissing, and then old St. Patrick interrupted me. I have come to be the bishop of your land. Well, I don't know, Saint, I replied. Where were you born? Britain. In Britain. Oh, no, well, Mr. Uh, Rick, we got laws, constitutional amendments, preventing aliens like yourself, your saintship, from becoming citizens or getting any of King McNeil's handouts to the peasantry. You see, we got too many foreigners coming in, taking our jobs, choice jobs, like that bishopry you're angling for. You don't understand. I was named, ordained by St. Germanus himself, to lead the Irish people. Oh, now, well, that's the problem. We don't want the Germanists telling us what to do. Germanist generals under the UN flag directing our soldiers in some Bosnian quagmire half a world away. We built up the factories and infrastructures of the Germanists and the Yanomotos, and now what are we looking at? $200 billion trade deficit. You don't understand. I bring with me the Latin Bible. Ah, that's not going to win you points. Gaelic's the official language of this country, sir. Constitutional amendment. I bring the shamrock clover, whose three leaves represent the Holy Trinity. Trinity? We don't want trilateralism here, senior saint. You're talking New World Order, IMF, World Court, World Bank, Goldman Sachs with their sacks of gold. This here is a sovereign nation under God. 
but it is God who has sent me here, replied poor St. Patrick in my dream, to chase the snakes from your land. Oh no, I replied. Chase the snakes, heavens to Betsy. If you banish the snakes, they'll just show up in repressed forms in our dreams. Why, here's one crawling up my leg now. And it, at this point, just when my phantasm was threatening to become a goofy meta-dream, the action suddenly shifted in that crazy way dreams go, shifted to the present, and I heard the strains of my campaign theme song. Buddy, you're a boy, make a big noise, playing in the street, gonna be a big man someday. You got mud on your face, you big disgrace. There I was, sitting with my friends and advisors Larry Pratt and Samuel Francis and John Lofton and the Reverend Donald Wildman, talking about where my campaign should go from here. Which is funny that it was those guys in the dream, because those are the ones that have gotten me into hot water with the media, because, well, let's just say those fellows don't repress their beliefs. If they talk to some local militias about a war against the white race, or how the TV industry is made up of people raised in Jewish homes, or about promiscuous homosexuals literally hell-bent on Satanism and suicide, well, they're just being frank, which is a lot more than we can expect from Beltway insiders like that parrot the Bobster, or Bill Clinton chasing issues like a blind dog in a meat market. Anyway, in the dream, we were talking about my options, the boys and I, the three paths diverging in our red, white, and blue wood. To be the good party boy, like I was in 92, support the leading candidate. To swoop down like a B-2 bombardier on San Diego in August with a whooping religious war cry against the murder of the unborn. Or to go the Wallace way. Bolt the party that made me and make my own. But this being a dream, things started to metamorphize. Lofton's head split open and the head of my old boss Richard Nixon sprouted from his shoulders in a bloody bloom of scatological curses. Never leave the expletive-deleted party, Patty Joe. His jowls flapped like sails in a squall. I stood by Ike. I stood by Barry. But I was distracted as my other three friends burst from their own bodies like soggy-winged gypsy moths from their chrysalis, becoming animatronic incarnations of my father's trio of heroes, General MacArthur, Joe McCarthy, and Francisco Franco. I couldn't beat Ike in 52, thundered MacArthur, but I gave him hell at the convention. Franco, of course, was for his militant third-party approach. Senator Joe was checking under my sofa for reds. But the whole architecture of the dream transmuted then, and I was in the future about 2010 or so, touring college campuses and 90s nostalgia theme parks in some virtual entertainment called The Three Pats, which was me, Pat Robertson, and Pat Boone. My buddy Robertson recited various apocalyptic folktales of his own devising, all of which involved earthquakes, tidal waves, and neoliberal democratic presidents with bisexual wives whose stints as Peace Corps volunteers in India made them acolytes of Shiva and eventually transformed them into the Antichrist. And Pat Boone. When I lost my baby, I 
this being a virtual entertainment of the future, I'm not sure if Pat Boone was alive or merely a hologramistic image existing within the light-emitting diodes rubber-cemented to the undersides of my eyelids. But there he was, clean-cut in white bucks, singing a rendition of his 1956 chart-topper, I Almost Lost My Mind, along with a smattering of selections from his fine gospel albums. And then I came on, the main act, sounding all the themes I've been sounding in this here campaign, issues I feel deeply about. I think of my father raised in poverty, but who through hard work was able to provide for his family. Now, men like my father are finding no outlet for their hard work, their ideals, their faith in America. I told them how the Ruth Ginsburg's Bader Jose to keep leap-zigging our fences and gooten-tagging our buildings with his Symbionese gang symbology, tacoing handouts and living off welfare yum-yum chow, giving birth to young fat tot at taxpayer expense, sashiming his way into our high tekamaki jobs while our boys in the military have to strap on the helmet coal of the United Heathen Nations and fight for the Turkish delight of Robin Hoods and radical sheiks. As my futuristic audience chortled and hiccuped derision into the biogenically filtered air of the campus mediatorium, I realized that I had become a parody of myself. Our act, The Three Paths, was being presented with the same camp intentions as when they were trotting out Timothy Leary and Gordon Liddy in mock debates a few years back. Now I am not a man who's prone to self-doubt. I am my own catechism, but maybe it's the beating I've been taking lately, even from men who I considered to be my friends, Bill Buckley, Bill Sapphire, George Will. They make the doubts pile up and spill over into dreams. Heck, I'm the only one left in this campaign with firm beliefs and true convictions, and yet I fear... I fear becoming some comic footnote in the history of man's struggle to lift his world up closer to the kingdom of God. My futuristic dream self gamely thundered on, but somehow the honest Christian faith of three men named Patrick had become the 21st century's equivalent of the Brady Bunch movie today, a farce, a way of feeling superior to our former and better selves. I think I woke up then, I'm not sure. I'm well into my third cup of coffee now, and it's high time to board that bus and move on to the next crowd, the next speech, the next state, the next primary. I suppose I should dwell on my dream a little more, analyze it, plumb its depths. But I'll leave interpretation to those ranks of young Rikians who twist every God-fearing thought to prove that we're all homosexuals that God is dead, that the racist teachings of Eldridge Cleaver should be taught in our schools while the Psalms of Jesus are banned. You see, I can't waste too much time on my own soul search. I've got to get out there with my posse and fight for the soul of America. Playwright David Isaacson. Fifty years ago, me father left old Erin Shore. He landed here a shillelagh in hand and divil a penny more. He got a job, then got a wife, then a family. 
And then he died and left his old shillelagh stick to me. Sure, it's the same old shillelagh me father brought from Ireland. And divil a man was prouder than he as he walked with it in his hand. He'd lead the band on Paddy's day and twirl it round his mitt. And divil a bit we'd laugh at it, for dad would have a fit. Sure, with the same old shillelagh me father could lick a dozen men. As fast as they'd get up Bigara, he'd knock them down again. And then is the time he used it on me to make me understand the same old shillelagh me father brought from Ireland. I'm going on the police force, it's the only thing to do. Instead of having one night stick, Bigora, I'll have two. If there's a fight, I'll be all right, there's no one bothers me. Because I have the old shillelagh me father gave to me. Sure, it's the same old shillelagh me father brought from Ireland. And divil a man was prouder than he as he walked with it in his hand. He'd lead the band on Paddy's day and twirl it round his mitts. And divil a bit, we laughed at it, or dad would have a bit. Sure, with the same old shillelagh me father could lick a dozen men. As fast as they'd get up, be gory, he'd knock them down again. And many's the time he used it on me to make me understand. The same old shillelagh me father brought from Ireland. Well, funding for this program has been provided by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Elizabeth F. Cheney Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the members of WBEZ Chicago. Today's program was produced by Peter Clowney and by myself, with Elise Spiegel, Nancy Updike, and Dolores Wilbur. Contributing editors Jack Hitt, Margie Rockland, and Paul Tuff. WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia. Special thanks today to Anahid Alani for the fandom postings to WBUR, to Professor Henry Jenkins, and all the writers from the ACAFAN Academic Study of Fandom Listserv Group. Thanks to Steve Cushing and the Blues Before Sunrise Radio Network for music. And of course, thanks to the, ple- thanks to the press office at Navy Pier. If you want to buy a tape of this or others of our programs, call us at WBEZ, 312-832-3380, or you can email us, our address, radio at well.com. We do answer our email. We broadcast proudly from WBEZ Chicago. We'll be back next week with more stories of this American life.